a bad beat, a broken record, and a lengthy losing streak coming to an end. And that all happened Wednesday night in the Big East. I've got that and so much more on this Valentine's Day edition of the Igloo. What's up, everybody? Happy Valentine's Day weekend. (laughs) Some of you, congratulations for spending it with someone. For people like me that are not and maybe somewhat feeling lonely, it's cool. It's cool. Well, not that cool, but, you know, it's all right. Basketball still got us company, right? At least in the Big East. And of course, me basketball still in the air, and we are now a month and a day away from Selection Sunday. And right around this time, I think this is right around where we kind of get a better gauge in terms of where teams are going to be really seated. Like the range in terms of where they're going to be really dwindles down. So that window of opportunity to move up seed lines or in some cases even move down or even out, that window is slowly shutting. So that means that the time is coming now and everything's finally starting to percolate in terms of where we can really expect teams to become tournament time. But hey... The conference tournament, especially in the Big East, you never know what's going to happen. And a lot of crazy things might happen that can affect where teams might end up in the bracket that will be released a month and a day away from today. Now, let's get right into it. Starting with Xavier on fire coming into a Wednesday night showdown at Butler, Butler 19th in the country, staying exactly where they were from last week. The Bulldogs took down Villanova and Hinkle Fieldhouse before getting dominated in Milwaukee against Marquette on Sunday. But the friendly confines of Hinkle Fieldhouse worked in favor of the Bulldogs like it has been for most of this season. However, despite the winning effort with Butler winning 66-61, unfortunately, Aaron Thompson was injured again. So, Aaron Thompson, who already had missed a few games with a wrist injury, now is in concussion protocol. According to Laval Jordan, he took an elbow to the head and went down to the floor with Butler holding a 17-point advantage. And that allowed Xavier to rally in this ball game. And they made it a game after Butler went up nine at halftime. It was 32-23. to But eventually Butler pulled away to win. But keep in mind, if you're betting on this game, and I feel sorry if you had Butler minus five and a half. With the score 66-58 and time expiring, Najee Marshall hit a three-pointer to end the game and get... Xavier to barely cover the spread. So, in the sports book, Xavier wins. In the win and loss column, Butler wins. So, final score 66 61. A balanced effort for the Bulldogs. Sean McDermott led the way with 14 points and six rebounds. Kamar Baldwin kind of struggled, only three of 11 from the field to finish with 11 points. Jordan Tucker chipped in 10 off the bench. And Henry Badley in the first half was huge. And he went perfect. Three for three from the field. All all points, wait, all those field goals were from behind the arc as he finished with nine points. And Butler again, 23 points off the bench compared to just six for Xavier. 
Xavier's bench was just two for eight from the field for six points and one of three from downtown at what each. And so a combined two for six from Tandy and Moore. Quentin Gooden didn't score at all, didn't even attempt a shot. Meanwhile, Butler's bench, like I said, 23 points on a combined 9 of 14 shooting, including 5 of 12 from deep. But again, Henry Badley was just on fire, 3 for 3. And Derek Smith, 8 minutes, 4 points, 2 for 2. But he did get himself into foul trouble with, with 4 fouls. Enzine Golden also got into foul trouble with 4 each. But that the Bryces combined for a dozen points. Meanwhile, for Xavier, I mentioned Najee Marshall hit the three-pointer at the buzzer that made this one a bad beat. He had a game-high 20 points on 8 of 15 shooting, 2 of 4 from behind the arc. Tyreek Jones, another double-double for the senior, 19 points, 10 rebounds. His shooting percentage has just been incredible the last few games. Just in the month of February, he's been incredible. 7 of 8 shooting. Also, Najee Marshall, I mean, three rebounds and three assists away from a triple-double as he had seven boards and seven assists. Zach Fremantle chipped in nine. Paul Scruggs with only three. So it was really a two-man show for the Musketeers as the rest of the team, outside of Marshall and Jones, just 22 points. Again, Butler wins that one, 66-61. Meanwhile, at the Rock in Newark, Seton Hall, number 10 in the country, coming off a huge road win at Villanova. Hosting number 23, Creighton, who coming off a high-scoring victory over St. John's at home. They won 94-82. Now it's coming off a pretty bad road loss against Providence on February 5th. And it was another track meet between these two ball clubs. Last year in Newark, it wasn't like that. It was only 63-58. to 58. But the previous two meetings, there were a lot of points put up. As a matter of fact, if you want to do an average, Seen Hall, in the previous two meetings before last season, they averaged... 88.5 points per game while Creighton averaged 82.5. A, a lot of points, except for last year, but this time they got back on that trend. And boy, was this an exciting game, back and forth, up and down basketball. You like to see it. Unfortunately for Seton Hall, Miles Powell did not have himself a good night, and his home struggles have just been really a point of emphasis over the last two home games at the Prudential Center. Struggled against Xavier on February 1st, and now Wednesday night, just 3 of 16 shooting, 1 of 11 from downtown. That one three-pointer came with about a second to go in regulation, so he only had 12 points. Quincy McKnight had the team high with 20 on 7 of 14 shooting, 2 of 4 from deep. Mamu and Romero Gill each had 13 points, but losing Mamu at when he fouled out with about five and a half minutes to go, that was a backbreaker for Seton Hall. I mean, in 15 minutes, because he was in foul trouble, he still put out a pretty efficient game with, thir- again, 13 points, six rebounds, six of nine shooting. And then off the bench, Jared Roden and Chavar Reynolds each with eight points. Tyree Samuel with just one from the charity stripe. And then for Creighton, they had four different players, each with 18 points. Damian Jefferson, Marcus Zigorowski, Tyshawn Alexander, and Denzel Mahoney. The craziest thing is, Mitch Ballack put up a goose egg. 0 of 7 from the field, 0 of 3 from downtown. He did grab six rebounds. But again, Creighton was able to win this game 87-82, to despite Mitch Ballack not scoring a single point in this game. Also worth noting, Den, uh, like I said, Denzel Mahoney, 18 points, including a back-breaking three-pointer with Creighton only up by one. 
in the final two minutes. I mean, he was left wide open, had the guts to shoot a deep three-pointer and knocked it down that all but sealed Seton Hall's fate. However, the MVP of this game, got to give it to Damian Jefferson. Just the way he rebounded, the way he hustled was incredible in this game. The I mean, this guy has been a true unsung hero for this team. The junior from East Chicago, Indiana. A guy that lost a lot of playing time a year ago because of his struggles as he lost his spot as the power forward to... Well, I mean, he lost it to Mitch Ballack, but he got replaced in the starting lineup, really, by Marcus Zigorowski, who was a freshman at the time. But he's come back really strong since then. He had 7 of 10 shooting, knocked down a 3-pointer as well, and had that huge hustle play where he got a deflection, was able to die for a loose ball, and then get an assist to Zigorowski on a layup. So again... Even though Seton Hall, better team on paper. The hardest working team was Creighton. And their hard work paid off as they picked up a huge road upset. Again, 87-82 to the final. Meanwhile, across the... Across the GW into New York City and Carnesec Arena in Queens. St. John's riding quite a lengthy losing streak. Now, uh, they were 2-9 and nine in conference going into this game. And, again, this team had just been just struggling mightily. As a matter of fact, entering Wednesday night, this team had lost six of their last seven games. And this was a golden opportunity for them to get back in the win column against a Providence team that's been struggling after such a good start in Biggie's play. They started off 4-1 and one in conference. But they had lost four of their last six going into this one. And St. John's, they came ready to play. To, you know... I predicted this, and like I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I just felt like St. John's was just going to rally, you know, without Mustafa Heron for the rest of the season. They had to adapt being without him, and they certainly did in that first game back. So St. John's wins 80 to 69. But I will say this: I was watching the game, and there were a couple interesting situations where St. John's was called twice for flagrant one fouls for. What's called a hook and hold. Now what that is on a rebound is if you're rebounding and you hook somebody on the arm, you're basically not allowing them to land safely. Which is what's considered unnecessary contact and that is grounds for a flagrant one foul. And St. John's fans were pissed off about it. Probably because they didn't know what the rule is. You know, if you're if you're a basketball fan, you should at least educate yourself on the rules. If you have no idea what's going on, instead of just booing because they're making the call against your team, how about you figure this shit out so you know what these refs are thinking? It's not like they're making these calls to just spite your team. Trust me, I've been there. Matter of fact, I refed a game at my old high school about a month ago. And I wasn't playing favorites for them. If anything, I was more in favor of the other guys and not them. But, you know, that's beside the point. By the way, St. John's was able to hold off the Friars, and they played an overall real solid game. They went up eight at halftime, and they pull away and win late 80 to 69. LJ Figueroa with 19 points to lead the way for the Johnnies, six of 14 from the field, four of nine from downtown, and then big time efforts from Julian Champagny, the freshman from Brooklyn, 14 points, five of nine shooting. Two of four from deep. And then Marcellus Erlington, 
A guy that really isn't known for his three-point shot, but he's been on fire from deep the last two games. Two for three from distance on Wednesday. Four of ten from the field. He did foul out, but in 19 minutes, 12 points, six rebounds, three assists. David Carraher, 13 minutes, chipped in five points. Nick Rutherford was six points in 20 minutes. And then Greg Williams with a solid nine-point effort. And then Rasheem Dunn with 13 points and four assists. Meanwhile, for Providence on the losing end, Alpha Diallo, a monster game from him. 19 points, 17 rebounds. Sounds like the kind of numbers that a guy who's not six foot seven would put up. So that makes it even more impressive in his final game in his home city. Meanwhile, only two other Friars in double figures. David Duke and A.J. Reeves, each with a dozen. Malik White and Nate Watson both struggled mightily, just combined for nine points. But Providence, their bench, did chip in 17 points total. But again, St. John's bench, much more productive with 23 points. So again, St. John's bounces back. Getting back in the win column with an 80-69 victory over Providence. And then finally, number 15 Villanova riding a three-game losing streak. Trying to bounce back finally against the now number 18 ranked Marquette Golden Eagles. Playing them at Finner and Pavilion. And this was a really good game, I must say. And... Villanova looked like they were going to smoke Marquette early on. Up nine at the break. And then had pretty big leads in the second half, but Marquette just kept fighting back. And they were led by Marcus Howard, who finished with a game-high 24 points, 8 of 20 shooting, 5 of 11 from downtown. And the last... Points of the game, down 72-68, a Howard three-pointer at the buzzer, officially moved Marcus Howard into first place on the Big East all-time scoring list, a record that was set a quarter century ago by Syracuse's Lawrence Moton. So congrats to Marcus Howard, his legendary career, not only at Marquette, but playing in the Big East, just continues on. He's definitely going to finish amongst, you know, the top 20, maybe even higher on the all-time scoring list in the history of NCAA Division I basketball. So again, congrats to Marcus on such a tremendous achievement. However, he did get some help from Sakar Annan with 14 points, 5 of 11 from the field, two of three from deep. Kobe McEwen struggled from deep, one of six, but he went four of 13 from the field, also grabbed 11 rebounds to go with 12 points. So a double-double for the junior from the six. Jamal Kane off the bench was huge, 13 points, eight rebounds, four of eight shooting, including an eye-popping three of four from distance. Meanwhile, for Villanova... 17 points and 11 rebounds to lead the way for Jeremiah Robinson Earl, the freshman. 6 of 9 shooting for the day. 14 points each for Samuels and Gillespie. And then 10 from Sadiq Bay and 8 from Justin Moore. And then off the bench, Cole Swider with 7 and Brandon Slater with 2. So despite Marcus Howard having another great night scoring and breaking the Big East all-time scoring record, Villanova holds on to knock off Marquette at Finner Pavilion in a tight one. 72-71, the final. So, that was your Wednesday in review. A kind of abbreviated Big East slate. You also got Villanova in non-conference play. A rare February non-conference game as they round out Big Five play at Temple. On Sunday, and then three Big East Conference games coming up on Saturday. I've got my picks for those coming up right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Igloo. Welcome back inside the Igloo. 
finally time for my weekend picks. So three games coming up on Saturday. First up, Georgetown visiting number 19, Butler, at Hinkle Fieldhouse. That'll be at 2.30 Eastern on Fox. Should be an interesting one because the way things have trended in each of the last three seasons, and I kid you not, these two teams have split the regular season meetings with the road team winning each meeting. So Georgetown has won a Hinkle three years in a row, while Butler has won in D.C. the last three years, and even dating back farther, they also won there back in late February of 2016. So the funny thing is, yeah, so now I think about it, Butler's now won five in a row in D.C. Georgetown has beaten Butler or Hinkle, though, now in each of the last three meetings. So, historically, you kind of want to stick with going with the Hoyas, right? And based on the injury to Aaron Thompson, if he's going to be out with a concussion on Saturday, which I think he probably will be, because that elbow to the head looked like it hurt. It looked like it... I mean, that that wasn't just some... Love tab. That was a firm elbow. It's obviously unintentional, but that's a grown man that's built knocking you in the head with an elbow. This isn't a forearm either. This is an. With the elbow extended, that's firm. That hurts. That hits way harder. And I know I completely went on a tangent on that. But long story short, Aaron Thompson is most likely going to be out. On the other side, what about Mac McClung? He's missed the last three games now due to injury. And the shocking thing is they've won two out of three. They won at St. John's by a point. Lost a tight game with Seton Hall. But then beat DePaul last weekend. So Georgetown's proven they can win without Mac. But I still feel like, man, it's, it's tough. It really is tough. But I, I got to go with my gut, and I am going to take the Butler Bulldogs to win this game. And it's going to be a tight one. Right now, the Bulldogs are, they are favored, but it's not. It's not that heavy of a favorite. However, I will say this though. Butler's defense against Xavier on Wednesday is a sign of things to come. Because this team finally got back to the basics defensively that made them so good early on this year. And I'm just really inclined to take the Bulldogs in this ballgame. I just... Like, that's just... That's just kind of my prerogative right now. Meanwhile, Creighton, number 23 in the country, coming off that big road win at Seton Hall, hosting DePaul, who has just been on the struggle bus now for a while. They've lost 10 of their first 11 conference games. Coming off a of bye week. Maybe the week of rest is going to help DePaul. Even then, I don't think there's any way the Blue Demons are going to go into Omaha and win this ball game. Period. And there's a reason why Creighton's favored by nearly double digits. It's a nine-point line as of right now. So give me the Blue Jays to beat DePaul. And then Saturday night, also CBS Sports Network... Seton Hall, who's been a completely different animal on the road versus at Prudential Center. Visiting Providence at the dunk. Providence 6-6 six and six in conference. Seton Hall 10-2. and two. Again, I think Seton Hall really needs, to, needs this game if they want to just continue. Again, they lost an opportunity to build on their lead in the Big East at three games with seven to play. It's now down to two. And again, Providence does a great job of defending home court. They really do. 
But I don't know. Just something is telling me in this situation with Seton Hall and the way they play so much better on the road. Seton Hall's proven to be road warriors, and it feels like compared to last year, Miles Powell was ne- not nearly as good on the road as he was at home. This year, it's more of the opposite. And Jerry Carino from the Asbury Park Press, longtime beat writer for Seton Hall basketball, wrote a great article about why Miles has struggled so much at home. And part of that is because at home, you know, fans are really expecting him to play a big, big role in these games and kind of had games that he had last year against, you know, teams like Marquette and Villanova, um, Georgetown, where he had a 30-piece last year. I mean, he hasn't had those big games at home other than the Michigan State game back in the middle of November. That was three months ago. But Powell's been so much better on the road. I expect him to have a bounce-back performance at the dunk where he's been pretty incredible for the most part, especially back in... 2018 and that that's a game that forever will be marred by the fact that due to the warm weather that was happening at the time and I was and I was there broadcasting the game with WSOU Seton's radio station it was so warm in February it was, it was like it was like in the mid 60s the ice underneath the court at the dunk that the Providence Bruins play on in the AHL It was melting, causing the floor to be slippery. And it was so bad that Desi Rodriguez sprained his ankle and a bunch of other guys slipped and the Biggies decided to suspend the game with 13 minutes left in regulation and finish the game the following afternoon in Providence's on-campus building. Still the only suspended game in the history of Biggies basketball. Finished it the next day, game Seton Hall won, but when it was being played in the dunk, Miles Powell was just unreal. Some of the shots he made, including a four-point play, was just absolutely ridiculous. I think he's going to channel that on Saturday night at the dunk. I really believe that. So, with Seton Hall favored by two and a half, I just really like the Pirates bouncing back at the dunk. And I think that loss is probably going to sink Providence's at-large chances right then and there. As I mean, right now, they're obviously not tremendous whatsoever. But a loss will drop them to 13-13, and 13, which is 500 for the entire season. Which, basically, you need to run the table if you want any chance of even getting an at-large. Like I've said before, they obviously got to win the Big East Tournament if they want any real hope of getting in. If that's not what they do, at least for the remainder of the regular season, if they lose, they got to run the table. Period. And then finally, I'm not going to go into too much detail. Final big five game of the year between Villanova and Temple. Villanova making a short drive to the Lyle Chorus Center. Temple's been okay this year. Not great. They did pick up a big win against Wichita State at home a few weeks ago. But you know what? Nova's Nova, and they are going to go on the road and knock off the Owls. And I don't think it's going to be that close, honestly. And that's going to get Villanova's momentum back and rolling. Again, they have six conference games remaining, and it's a somewhat favorable slate. Because after this, they are at DePaul, at Xavier, home against St. John's in Providence, and then on the road against Seton Hall in Georgetown. And realistically, I could see them winning, you know, possibly five out of six of those games, if I'm being totally honest. I, I think it's a long shot for them to go 6-0 and the rest of the way, but I could definitely see 5-1, and one Four and two at the worst, really. Because I don't expect them to lose in Chicago against DePaul. I don't think they're going to lose in D.C. against Georgetown. I think there's a very good chance they'll go into Cincinnati and beat Xavier. 
You never know when the, with them playing at Seton Hall. And then at home against St. John's of Providence, I mean, I think those are fair to say I think they're guaranteed W's. And that'll definitely elevate their status in terms of being a top four seed at the very least in the NCAA tournament. And possibly getting in the conversation for maybe still in contention for the number one seed in the Big East. But to be a two or three, still very much a possibility. And even a two would definitely get them in a much better position in terms of in the Big East tournament, you know? Especially with more rest, potentially. So, those are my weekend picks. Coming up next, I talked about Seton Hall before, and joining me after this is going to be longtime color commentator for the Pirates on AM970, The Answer, who also happens to work freelancing also with CBS Sports Network, among other media outlets, as well as the Buffalo Bisons in AAA Baseball. The one, the only Dave Popkin is going to be joining me up next here on the Igloo, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Seen Hall still atop the Big E standings at 10-2 and two despite a home loss on Wednesday to the Creighton Blue Jays. And joining me now, the longtime color commentator and one half of arguably, in terms of just team-specific, the best broadcasting duo on radio in college basketball along with Gary Cohen on AM 970, The Answer, the one and only Dave Popkin. Dave, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me today. Timmy, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. It's great. Well, speaking of you and Gary being that dynamic duo, you recently celebrated a huge broadcasting milestone on February 1st, the home game for the Pirates against Xavier. That was your 500th game broadcasted together. Uh, what does that milestone mean to you um, personally? You know, it was uh, it was just a chance to reflect and thank Seton Hall and everybody that put us in that position. Um, we've had a, a great relationship with the school and with each other. And uh, it's, it's lasted, you know, probably longer than I expected. I'm a play-by-play guy by trade. Uh, but um, since the first game, you know, we really clicked and we've had basically the same show for 17 years. We, we've been uh, in sync the whole time. And, you know, I'm sure some things have, have gotten better, but it's been, uh, you know, a great experience to learn from Gary. He is, you know, obviously one of the best to ever do it. Um, I think that he'll end up in the basketball and baseball Hall of Fames one day. Um, he's the only person to ever do play by play for three different Big East teams and now Seton Hall, you know, obviously the longest. And, um, but for me personally, um, it, it's been, it's been cool to see the ride, you know, see the highs and the lows. And um, obviously this year is hopefully the high of, of highs uh, after last night, um, you know, it was a bit of a head scratcher, but the team has played so well this year and the guys uh, are so great to be around that it's it's been a joyful season. Um, you know, I'm just I'm happy. You know, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. Now, I mean, you talk about you know the highest of highs and lowest of lows, and you mentioned that this could potentially be uh, that ultimate high. Um, so, so far for you, what have been at least in your point, uh, at least from your perspective, like the best highs and best moments that you've seen with the Seton Hall team so far this season. I think for sure the most important win and the biggest high was the Maryland game because you're without Powell, you're without Mambo Kalashvili, and the team had to reinvent themselves. They won a game in the 50s. Um, they kind of got back to that defensive mentality that they had with Delgado and Sonogo and Carrington and those guys, Desi. Um, It was like a junkyard dog kind of game. And, you know, even Nelson stepped up and everybody stepped up. Roden 
and they proved that they were more than just Miles Powell and that they could win. Um, at that point, we didn't know when Powell was coming back, if he was coming back. So it gave you hope again for the season because after you get blown out by Rutgers, um, that was the lowest, obviously. I mean, you just get hit with a buzzsaw in the first five minutes of the game, and then Powell leaves with a concussion. You figure, season's over, right? <laughs> this is horrible. We thought we were going to the Final Four this year, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the, we're, we're in bad shape. But um, but they bounced back and, and then just went on the long run. So um, it just proved they're, they're deep, they're well-coached, they're, they're well and kind of no matter what happens – there's somebody else next man up that can take the reins. And, um, you know, we, we saw that recently with Mamu, you know, he stepped up and had a great game at Villanova and, you know, was the best player on the floor at times. So um, it's kind of been somebody different each game. You know, you see McKnight step up, you see Roden step up and um, that, that heartens me, you know, that they, they can have a good run and not have to, have one guy do it yeah and, and that makes a very good point. i mean that one sequence where mamu had you know i think it was three rebounds in that one sequence and then the the put back in and paid homage to angel with the double flex um i, I mean i thought that was po- so poetic in so many ways and that, so you mentioned obviously the maryland win and then obviously the win at Villanova on Saturday, which is something Seton Hall hasn't done since 1994. Um, I talked about a little bit with Chris McManus, but from your perspective, being around this team uh, much longer and seeing uh, the Kevin Willard era now in its 10th season since day one, um, where do those wins kind of rank in terms of uh, Kevin's most important coaching victories? So, I mean, I think it's obvious that winning the Big East Championship was – his most important victory, but where did those two wins rank among his best all time? Well, Kevin told us in the post game show, and this was five minutes after the game. So you could take it with a grain of salt, but he said that the Maryland win was the most important win of his career. That it was the biggest win of his career. Uh, And I, I, it's hard to disagree because of the moment that they were in, you know, like what I was talking about before feeling like, Hey, can they do it? Is the season lost or can we turn this around? Um, a team with high expectations. Um, obviously, you know, that my favorite was the 2016 Big East final against Villanova where Whitehead hits the shot. Kevin falls down on the sidelines. Um, Gary had the big call at the end on, you know, on the Whitehead and one. And then I said, that ball sat on the back of the rim for 23 years <laughs> because it just it felt like it, you know, it's just like uh like a dam had burst. So that was the big one for me. But the other, and the Villanova one, you know, this past Saturday was huge because of the history and the 17 game losing streak. And uh, that was right up there. I would say that one was in the top five, but the one that um, I think sometimes gets overlooked that really took a lot of burden, I think off this staff and this team was the NC state win in the first round in Wichita uh, a couple of years ago uh, because Kevin hadn't won an NCAA tournament game. There were pretty high expectations uh, with Delgado and Desi and everybody on that team. And for them to beat a pretty good NC state team and then almost beat Kansas uh, in the next game in the state, which is basically, a, you know, it was basically a road game. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, they've gotten some horrible draws, obviously we could talk about that, but the fact that they won that game and kind of got to the second round, that was like, the next step for this program. So I put the NC state win uh, pretty high on the list. Yeah. I mean, I, that is definitely one. I agree with you. One, one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I mean, getting that monkey off your back was obviously important for Kevin Willard. It's definitely helped him get even bigger wins, you know, in the last couple of years, you know, you mentioned obviously beating Maryland at home this year, winning at, uh, winning at Villanova and then even at last Butler, year beating yeah. at Butler was a huge win and then also beating Kentucky in the garden and then saving their tournament hopes a year ago by beating Marquette and Villanova a couple ranked opponents back to back at home to end the regular season um, but overall I mean Kevin Willard I really I I know he he gets a lot of he gets a lot of flack and I think a lot of it's unnecessary but 
just in the 10 years that he's been there, it's crazy to think it's been 10 years now, but uh, you can't knock the job that he has done resurrecting this program for being a seller dweller in the Big East into a team that is now um, a legitimate national title contender. I agree uh, wholeheartedly. And I was on with Bruce Beck the other night and I said that, you know, Kevin doesn't get enough credit for player development. You know, you think about all these guys over the past five or 10 years, they all get better each year. Romaro Gill, he's probably going to be the most improved player in the big East and the defensive player of the year. This is a guy that, you know, hardly played. He, He played junior college before that he hardly played. And then last year he didn't play big minutes. So this year he steps in, he earns the starting center job. I mean, it looked like Obiago was going to be the starter. And Gil took the job. And then when he plays well, this team is unstoppable. I mean, there were moments last night where they're finding him on lobs, and it totally changes the momentum. And he obviously changes the momentum on defense because they can't drive on him because he stays vertical and he blocks shots and he alters shots. So, I mean, and that's just one example. Like, all these guys have gotten better under him. Jordan Theodore got better. Um, Desi Rodriguez got better. Um, so his staff, Sonogo, Sonogo got better. I mean, they all did. So, I mean, that's a big <laughs> one. And then just, you know, his recruiting has been pretty consistent, you know, his good class coming in next year and now being on TV every game and being in the top 10, that's going to help the recruiting. Um, but PJ Carlissimo said in the New York post the other day, listen, it's hard to win at Seton hall. You know, it's, it's a small Catholic school that doesn't have an on-campus arena they practice in the basement, you know, in the auxiliary gym. Um, it's 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 a blue-collar situation, you know. Now, do they stay in those nice hotels and charter now? Yes. Are they trying to catch up to the rest of the league? Yes. I mean, but Kevin has done that. <laughs> you know, like, he, is, he has to be given credit for going to the tournament every year, being in the Big East final several times. Um, he's done so many good things. And now it's an expectation with the program, not an aberration or an every third year kind of thing. It's an every year kind of thing that they win 20 games and go to the NCAA tournament now. And it's not easy to do at schools like Providence, like Ed Cooley's done, and at Seton Hall. I mean, those are all excellent points. I mean, it's crazy to think, you know, this year, I mean, with the trajectory that they're on, they're going to make their fifth straight NCAA tournament, something that has never been done at Seton Hall. So it's going to be an amazing accomplishment um, uh, for this team and for Kevin Willard as the head man. Um, but speaking of, uh, I know you mentioned Romero Gill getting a lot of easy looks during that Creighton game. And with Creighton's lack of size, I'm a little surprised that he wasn't fed as much, especially down the stretch. But I also got to give uh, Creighton credit as we talk about that previous game on Wednesday night. Uh, They came ready to play, and they did a lot of things right that led them uh, to winning that ball game. So, obviously, Seton Hall lost, but I think Creighton won it more than Seton Hall lost it. What impressed you the most about the Blue Jays' um, performance in Newark on Wednesday? I mean, they were able to overcome an offer by Mitch Ballack, who's one of their best players. Jefferson's hustle, um, some of the intangible plays like uh, steals, block, a couple assists, diving on the floor, a couple big jumpers. Um, he was great. And, and these guys do not have a big rotation. They have six and a half, seven guys. They had Jefferson, Ballack, Zagorowski, Alexander, all playing 35-plus minutes. Zagorowski was really impressive. I mean, he controlled the game at times and on both ends. And, you know, Alexander was himself. He scored 18 points, and he shut down Miles Powell, which very few people are able to do. So I, I've thought, and Kevin said this in the postgame show, and I agreed with him, Creighton's the second-best team in the league. Now, last night, they were the best team in the league. They came in, and they won at Seton Hall. It's a pretty big win. Um, there, I didn't look at the net yet today, but they're, they got to be really vaulting up. They came in 24. They got to be in the top 20 in the net after a win like that. So they're really good, you know, and I think that um, they've played close games with Seton Hall. Seton Hall has a chance, you know, late in the season to last game of the season to have some revenge in the situation. You know, if Powell makes a couple more shots, they probably 
uh, win that ball game despite some of the failings in the contest. But, you know, Creighton plays together. They passed it well. They had 16 assists. They shoot it great. And, um, and they're well coached. You know, they play their system. They tried to push it. They scored 87 points and they won the game. And, and they did make a lot of big plays. And, um, I mean, Denzel Mahoney hitting the three from oh, yeah. way deep. That was at, I mean, that was a, that was, yeah, backbreaker. I mean, that's about, I mean, it would be like, essentially like the Undertaker hitting with the Tombstone Pile Driver. You know, once that happens, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> yeah. That's the, I mean, I could, I could use a number of different things for that, but that was just the one that came to mind. But um, still, Seton Hall um, was able – I mean, it's still only their second conference loss. They're still in very good shape, and Creighton is not a bad team to lose to. I know losing at home isn't ideal, but this Creighton team, like you said, still the second-best team in the Big East, and arguably, I think, if with everyone coming back next year, I think they're going to be the preseason favorites – next year so that's gonna be scary to think about um but as we move on to saturday night at providence uh this is a providence team that mightily struggled out of conference with a lot of really bad losses um but and they played seed hall tough in newark uh now as we transition into the dunk um what are you kind of expecting seton hall um what, do you, uh, what are the adjustments they need to make in order to uh, rebound and bounce back from this setback on Wednesday? Uh, get back to that grit on defense. Creighton had too many layups, and they had too many open threes. Um, just get back to your defensive identity and make a couple shots. And I think for some reason, uh, for Miles Powell, he's played better on the road. He's averaged over 27 points a game um, You know, in Big East play on the road. And he, he's, I think he's shot like 16% threes at Prudential Center this year overall, which is unbelievable. I mean, it's his, it's his home gym, and for whatever reason, it's just they get the eye of the tiger on the road, and these guys are just they're road warriors. You know, I mean, they've they're undefeated on you know Big East play on the road, and which is unheard of. So I think they'll come to play. They'll come angry. You know, they're four and one following a loss this year. I expect them to win at Providence. I expect them to be favored in the game. Uh, Providence has a number of guys that can shut down Powell, and that's of concern. You know, Powell did not have a big game. He had 14 points the last time those teams played. Uh, Malik White did a good job on him. David Duke did a good job on him. Uh, Diallo's long. They could put him on him. So they can rotate guys and put taller players on him, making it harder for him to shoot three-point shots. So um, whatever's up with Powell, I think if he is not hot from three, and can take it to the rack, as he's done in some games, get to the free throw line. He can score 20-plus, and, and they can win the game. But there's obviously you know, so many other guys that, that need shots and that can play well, like McKnight and Mamu and Roden. So, I mean, Seton Hall's the better team. Um, I expect them to come in a little angry and win the game. I, I can, I, and I can totally see that, too. I, I, I mean, I got Seton Hall winning. I think it's going to be – Another close one like it was just a few weeks ago when they battled in Newark. Now, moving forward, I mean, obviously Seton Hall continues just to nab the, nab the wins that they know they can win and then find a way to, you know, get a couple more big wins, you know, possibly winning against Marquette and Creighton, uh, either Marquette or Creighton on the road, maybe even both if they could do it. Uh, but overall, I mean, the Big East is just a gauntlet this year, and I can't even imagine what the Big East tournament um, is going to be like in in an, only a month. I mean, it's crazy to think that's you know right around the corner. Uh, but not not just from a Seton Hall perspective, but in the from the Big East perspective in general, what are you looking forward to most uh, with this Big East tournament coming up in just a few weeks? Seton Hall getting the top seed because it's the most forgiving schedule. They could play early. Uh, they could avoid Wednesday. They could play early on Thursday, the noon game, and then have a little bit more rest uh, for Friday. Uh, it's hard to win three games in a row, consecutive days. We've seen that in not only the Big East tournament, but some of these other tournaments that um, that Seton Hall has played. Like Gonzaga is the best team I've seen this year. They were not able to win three days in a row um, in the Bahamas in the Seton Hall tournament this year. Um, because it's hard, like it's hard physically to do that. So um, any, any amount of 
you know, extra rest or weaker opponent or whatever you can do uh, with, with seeding help, that's important. And I think winning the regular season championship is like a good check mark for them to say, okay, it validates this team. We were picked to win the league and we're going to win the league. They haven't won the regular season since 93. So that's another monkey to get off your back. So if they can do that, you know, if they can go like four and two down the stretch here, win the regular season, go in as the number one seed and like make it to the conference final and or win that game. It's huge. I mean, it, it really validates their season. And then it's just all matchups in the NCAAs. It's who knows, you know, you could, you could get a really tough opponent or somebody hot, like a UMBC in the first game and you're done, or you could win four or five games and make it to Atlanta. Like this team is capable of doing either thing. Um, but, you know, I think that this is a team that could win both the regular season and the conference tournament. And, and it's crazy to think that, you know, Seton Hall, a team that hasn't really been in a conversation for a national championship in, you know, close to 30 years or maybe even more. Uh, but here they are um, in this situation. Uh, but kind of to wrap this up, um, obviously, Seton Hall has been able to find themselves um, in the new Big East, kind of in the old Big East, they kind of got lost in the shuffle with, you know, a lot of the powerhouse schools, you know, Syracuse, Louisville, uh, the old Georgetown teams that were overpowering back in the day. Um, well, I mean, in the in the years before the Big East was performed into what it is now. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's been uh, it's been a godsend for them. I mean, it's been perfect. It's been you get 10, 10 teams, 11 next year with UConn. All the teams are good. You know, it's, it's been very deep. Even DePaul was good early in the year. They started out 12 and one. So they have not been easy uh, bop by any chance. And now St. John's won again. So they're, they're not an easy game. So it's a deep league. They have five ranked teams this week, which they've never had before since the reconfiguration. They got, I don't know how many teams in the top 30 of the net, most of the league. So, it's a, it could be a banner year for the league. What they need to do now is to get, you know, six teams in, which is a lot. It's 60% of your league and make a little noise in the tournament, you know, because the league has had, you know, a couple of years recently where they get a bunch of teams in and everybody's done in the first or second round. So I think Seton Hall is a team and Marquette is a team and Creighton's a team, probably Villanova is a team that can rectify that and win a few games in the tournament and, you know, make a little bit of a run for the league. But it's been great. I mean, it's been a perfect situation for Seton Hall because you bring in basketball schools, you bring in Catholic schools generally, uh, schools that are generally the same size with the same resources, like a Butler, you know, like a, you know, Xavier, like a Creighton. And it, it's been a good marriage. I mean, I think it's a marriage made in heaven. Getting back to the roots of being a basketball-only conference, and it's – it's only paid dividends. I mean, just look at the growth of the league and, you know, the national TV exposure that it gets. And, and now everyone's getting a, getting a piece, piece of the pie, which is really all you can ask for. And Seton Hall has definitely resurrected itself as part of this new league. And, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what, what this is going to do for the league, especially if, if the, these all the like you mentioned can make it deep, make it deep into the tournament, unlike they have, uh, you know, in previous years. But um, it's going to be a fun ride the final few weeks of the regular season and into the NCAA tournament. And Dave Popkin, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to join me. Uh, enjoy the rest of your calls throughout the season uh, with Gary, and um, I, I'll be, in, I'll actually be around next weekend for St. John. So I, I guess I'll see you then. All right, we'll see you there. I appreciate the time. Keep up the good work. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thanks. More on the Igloo coming up after this. Welcome back inside the Igloo. A big thank you to Dave Popkin once again for joining me to talk Seton Hall basketball and their loss on Wednesday and their upcoming road game against Providence. Battle of original Big East foes on Saturday night at the dunk. Should be an exciting one between those two foes. It usually is no matter where they match up. Now, without further ado, it's time for this episode's icebreaker. And this one, as 
February marks Black History Month, I'm going to be discussing an article that the Big East had put out about the diversity that they have in the coaching ranks in the league. As a matter of fact, of the 10 coaches now in the Big East, exactly half of them are of African or African-American descent, which is simply marvelous, honestly. And if you want if you want to know who they are, if you're not familiar with who the Biggie's coaches are right now, I mean, obviously there's 10 of them, but the five of them that are of African or African-American descent are Laval Jordan at Butler, Dave Lato at DePaul, Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, Ed Cooley at Providence, and Mike Anderson at St. John's. And I, I think that's honestly so awesome. And, you know, something to keep in mind, you know, obviously having African-American coaches at very high levels, whether it be Division One basketball, Major League Baseball, even the NBA, even the NFL. The NFL had issues with African-American coaches not being able to get head coaching jobs. It's not very diverse in the NFL. The NBA has been doing a much better job with, you know, having more African-American coaches. Major League Baseball, there really aren't any African-American managers around. And just something to keep in mind you know, the first African-American manager didn't come around until 1975, and that was Frank Robinson, who, by the way, was still playing at the time when he became manager of the Cleveland Indians. Oh, and by the way, he had a home run on opening day. Fun fact for you. And the funny thing was, that didn't ha- that happened nearly 30 years after the game was finally integrated when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. And with basketball being a sport where the majority of the players these days are now African-American, it's still a little startling to see a lack of African-American coaches in the sport, in the NBA and even in college. But the fact that the Big East has half of their coaches that are of African or African-American descent, it really just goes to show how progressive the Big East is. And you know what? You know who this all goes back to? At least in terms of the Big East, honestly? Big John Thompson. I mean, this was the guy who in the early to mid-80s had built Georgetown into a juggernaut. And because of that, you know, having Patrick Ewing, who is now one of those five African or African-American coaches in the league, you know, Ewing, Thompson, and the rest of that team, because of how good they were and partially because of their race, honestly, at the time, They were kind of perceived as the villains because of the way that they played their poise, their attitude, the way they carried themselves. They wore, they, and the funny thing was, they were not afraid to wear the black hat and be the villain. But times have changed. You know, race relations have gotten significantly better throughout the years. Although we are trending backward, which I I hate to see that. I really do. Because as a country, we are so much better than this. You know, we pride ourselves on being a melty, melting pot and accepting, tolerating, and celebrating diversity and all the cultures that we have in this country. 
And it's, it's unfortunate that we have a president who seems to, and I may be stretching this, I, I'm not saying he condemns it, but he certainly doesn't promote it either, to be honest with you. I mean, just look at the following that he has. And the people that who, the people who most support him. It's just something to think about. It's a vast majority, and I'm not trying to stereotype or anything, but, like, that's just a simple point I'm trying to make. But, here we are in 2020, and the Big East, in terms of all the other conferences in the country, both major, mid-major, and low-major, they have to be up there, maybe at the very top, in terms of being one of the most progressive and diverse conferences in all of Division I college basketball. Not even just with having half of their coaches being of African or African-American descent. I mean, just look at the pool of talent that's being drawn here to the Big East. I mean, they come from all over the country. They also come from so many places from all over the world. I mean, just with Seton Hall, for example. I know Kevin Willard, a Caucasian, is the head coach. But look at the roster that he has now and the rosters that he's had in the past. I mean, if you want to talk about just the last six years, dating back to when I was a freshman in college, when I first got there, they had guys from Latvia, France, the Dominican Republic, Nigeria. Obiago's from Nigeria, who's on the team now. And then uh, Romero Gill from Jamaica. Mamu's from the Republic of Georgia in Eastern Europe. Tyree Samuel from Montreal in Canada. I mean, obviously, you had Angel Dugato from the Dominican Republic. Mike Enzi was from Nigeria. I mentioned Latvia, which is where Harold Carlos was from. Steph Manga was from France. And even around some of the other teams in the league, you know, Kasum Yakwe was from Mali. Musini and Ali Begovic were Italian. Ron Mavuica was French. Yankuba Sima was from Spain. And he was of African descent. But being from Spain. Karem Kanter is from Turkey. Omer Yurtsev is from Turkey. You know, the list goes on and on. It's just such a diverse league. In terms of the talent. As well as the coaches. And with Black History Month being this month, I, I just think it's incredible. And I, I only sing my highest praises for the Biggies for celebrating the fact that they have half of their coaches as African or African-American descent. And I honestly love that so much. I really do. And they weren't hired as PR stunts to show that they wanted to be diverse. That is far from it because all five of those guys are incredible basketball coaches and incredible basketball minds. Ed Cooley has taken Providence back to where they were, you know, under Dave Gabbitt and even Rick Patino and Rick Barnes taking them to the NCAA tournament, you know, five years in a row from 2014 to 18. Mike Anderson has had tremendous success at Arkansas. Patrick Ewing, even though he's a younger, well, less veteran coach in the Big East, he's still coached in the NBA. And he's one of the greatest basketball players of all time, both in college and in the NBA. He's a basketball Hall of Famer for a reason. 
He's a, and he's a legend, a New York Knicks legend. I mean, he called the guard in his house, and he's got a great point when he says that. And he said that after he had beaten St. John's there on Super Bowl Sunday. Laval Jordan had a tough stretch where, you know, last year, I mean, his team was just not great and they could only make the NIT. But still, he took his took a team to the NCAA tournament his first year and is definitely going to go back again this year as well. Dave Lato has been successful at DePaul. I mean, during his first stint, you know, led him to a Conference USA championship in the NCAA tournament. And then he moved on to Virginia where he was 2007 ACC Coach of the Year and led the Cavaliers to the NCAA tournament as the, a number four seed where they got knocked down round two by Bruce Pearl in Tennessee, who at the time was really, really good. Also, something to think about also with Laval Jordan, he was on John Beeline's staff in Michigan. And Beeline's teams are really, really good. So these coaches, they weren't hired as PR stunts. They're hired because they're pretty damn good coaches. And all five of them, Throughout the years, maybe, maybe not, maybe not as well now, but they have in the past. They have all proven that they could be excellent coaches, and they have been excellent coaches, and they're going to continue to be excellent coaches for years to come. And I firmly believe that. And I hope not only the fans of the teams that have these coaches, but everyone who follows the Big East and college basketball in general. I hope that all of them will pull for these guys to succeed and lead their programs the way that they've been leading them so far and continue to make the Big East the great and diverse and unique conference that it has been, is now, and always will be. That wraps it up for this episode of The Igloo. Thank you for tuning in. Should have an exciting episode up on Monday. I'll probably post some information about potential guests that I'm going to have lined up for that one on Twitter coming up over the weekend. Still trying to cross a few T's and dot a few I's on that. So be on the lookout for that. Follow me on Twitter at the real Timmy Ice if you aren't already. So until until next time, this is Timmy Ice signing off. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Valentine's Day and enjoy your weekend.